All right, before we start the show, we need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oral Recovery, founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, with the mission of creating a treatment that helps alcoholics and addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible. And I actually just met a guy who went to Oro from this ad, and he said, I think that the word he used was plush, but he also said it was an incredible experience, and they treated him right, which is what I love to hear about. They are very, very highly rated and reviewed. Their amenities are out of control, fucking surfing, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and so much other stuff. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. Sometimes I think about relapsing just to go to Oro. I'm just kidding. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? It's an app in your phone, in your pocket, so there's always a sober buddy in your pocket, but it's so much more. It is a community. We've started doing Zooms at Sober Buddy. We're even doing a dopey Zoom on Wednesdays. And if you're interested in going to the dopey Wednesday Zoom, hit me up. Maybe I can get you in there. Who knows? Last week we talked about triggers. They do like six Zooms a week. The community is building. They provide support. They offer challenges. There's a tracker on the app. It is a new growing resource for you if you are wanting to get sober or you're interested in getting sober. Check them out at YourSoberBuddy.com or on the App Store or the Google Play Store. It's Your Sober Buddy. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and providing it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends direct results to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Again, www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Oh my fucking Christ. My name is David, and um, I'm at my house. I'm in the Dopey studio, in the Dopey suite. And I swear to God, I'm losing my mind. It's like, I have this beautiful equipment, 
but sometimes it just doesn't work and it just failed and I had to reset to factory settings. It can't detect my Wi-Fi. It, it turned into French. You know, it's giving me French passé. It's asking me weird French questions. And I thought I was going to like, you know, have a heart attack and use the old, the old technology for all of you old school dopes. But uh, it's working. So thank God. Thank God it's working. I hate not knowing how stuff works. I really need to take a crash course. I need to, like, do a YouTube video. There's a lot of stuff happening, all right? There is a lot of stuff happening. Today on the show, we have a real... I don't know why I think of it as a sort of holiday episode, but it felt like a holiday episode while I was recording. I was recording with Tom Farley, the oldest of the Farley brothers, the most famous of the Farley brothers, of course, was Chris Farley of Saturday Night Live, Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, all that stuff. Chris Farley, of course, died many years ago. He was a legendary comic, legendary actor, legendary addict and alcoholic. And uh, it was random. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you guys know this, but when you write me an email or send me a voicemail, sure a lot of you know this you send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com a lot of you guys message me on instagram and facebook and the messages go to weird places and somebody messaged me on facebook it went to some meta messaging thing and they had met tom farley and they they asked him if he wanted to come on dopey i think i don't know they sent me a picture of his business card and i called him and he said uh he wanted to come on and then he said he was going to be in town next week. So we made a time, and I went up to 57th Street in Lexington to this swanky hotel, and I met him and his mother, who, of course, is also Chris Farley's mother. And the hotel was hustling and bustling, and it was near Bloomingdale's and, you know, Christmas time in the city. It's all, it's all happening. So it felt very Christmas-like. And also to be talking about his family made it feel very Christmassy. Um, I got a message on Twitter that I would like to read. It's a long message, but first I actually just got an email from Hardcore Dope and also friend of the show. He gave me a cane made out of weed. We call him Cane Strains or Strain Canes. I'm going to pop him up right now. Hold on. Strain Canes. He wants to, he says, Dave, can you do me a quick favor? And, and, and Strain Cane sent me a beautiful walking stick made out of marijuana, I guess, and it's awesome. I have it on my porch. He says, Dave, can you do me a quick favor? I'd love to know the lyrics to your intro song, When You Feel Like No One Understands Your Affliction. Uh, and so I played it on the show, and we're going to go through the lyrics right now. So hold on, let me see if I can technically set this up for you guys. And if you didn't know... The, the songwriter and performer of the song is Alan A. from Ireland. I don't know if Alan A. is still listening, but here we go. I'm going to play the song again. You feel like no one understands your affliction. If you feel like no one understands your affliction. Here, I'm going to keep playing it. When you feel like no one's home so alone in your addiction. When you feel like no one's home, so alone in your addiction. Well, if your deal is left, then put your headphones on and walk to the right. I'm not sure what he says there. 
is if your gear is life. I don't know what he says there. Alan A., if you're out there, let me know. If somebody can understand this this Irishman or Scotsman or Englishman, I don't even know exactly where Alan A. is from. But I think he says, if your gear is life, then put your headphones on and walk to the right. Again, if you know the lyrics, just send them into dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Because there's a nation out there, keep you safe, keep you clean, at least for tonight. So pay attention, dopey nation, the afflicted wanna reminisce. So pay attention, dopey nation, the afflicted wanna reminisce. And then the next part really gets me choked up. So pay attention, dopey nation, for a fallen brother's taught and dress. To this day, that part always gives me the chills. He says, pay attention, Dopey Nation, to our fallen brothers, Todd and Chris. And then he has audio of Chris saying toodles that he slows down so it sounds uh, really trippy and sad. It always gives me the chills. And then let's see what's next. Life seems like a curse with the hearse in reverse. Put a smile on your face at last. And now he really gets gets into the lyric the lyric the lyricism, the artistry of lyrics. He says, like life seems like a curse. You put the hearse in reverse. Put a smile on your face at last or in last. Let me hear. Hold on. Life seems like a curse with the hearse in reverse. Put a smile on your face that lasts. Maybe it's put a smile on your face that lasts. I don't know. Again, I'm very interested in your opinion. Here's the end of it. So pay attention, Dopey Nation. It's time for the Dopey Podcast. He says, pay attention, Dopey Nation. It's time for the Dopey Podcast. Man, I think this theme song is fucking good. Hold on. Here, here's the end of it. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Time for Dave and the Dopey Podcast. And then I get the chills again every time here. He says, uh, hold on. What does he say? He says, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Time for Dave and the Dopey Podcast, which always, you know, hits me right in the, right in the heart. And then he does the real crazy thing where he plays the slow down me and Chris laughing into the real theme song of the show, which if you didn't know, is called If I'm Not Home, I'm Out Walking Around. And here's the ending of it. Here's the big finish. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Time for Dave and the Dopey Podcast. I love this song so much. So I want to thank Alan A. again. I think I've thanked him many times, but I want to thank him again for writing such also TV style theme song. Love it. Fucking amazing. If you're a songwriter out there, you want to try your hand at a dopey theme song, maybe you'll get a little little thing like this, a little spotlight on your music. Check out Alan A. Alan A, remind me how they can check you out. He's from Ireland. And uh, we went in depth one time me and my father, maybe two summers ago, maybe three summers ago, me and my dad did a Patreon episode dedicated to the music of Dopey. And, um, and you get to hear his opinions about it. So that's a, you know, it's a subtle 
calling out to you guys to join Patreon. Patreon is so much good stuff. I just recorded two bonus Patreon episodes with Aaron Carr. Uh, really good stuff. So go to Patreon. And I also keep putting up these old videos. I, I put up a video of me interviewing KRS-One. I put up an interview of me at this hippie festival in 1999 called Gathering of the Vibes. And Merle Saunders is there. And, and uh, uh, what's his face? This guitar player that I'm not thinking of. Fucking shit. I can't think of his name. Ridiculous. Some kind of jazz, you know, hippie jazz guitar player. And uh, the dude from Mo is there. Oh, John Schofield is his name. And, uh, and I'm really high, and there's really high hippies there. And then, of course, we do the Dopey Patreon Zoom. There's, of course, a ton of giveaways and stuff. So uh, go to Patreon. Support Patreon. I'm thinking of changing Patreon and doing more Zooms and meetings, but more will be revealed with that. Now, before I say anything else, I want to give a big shout-out to Matt Shoemaker. I'm not sure why. I think your sister hooked you up with something, and maybe an anniversary is coming up. She just wants me to give you a shout-out, so shout-out to Matt Shoemaker. And I want to shout-out Edward Alliser and the newly formed Dopey Podcast, Dopey Nation Digital Street Team. If you're interested in doing that, get a hold of him. If you're interested in being an intern, our intern program is really shaping up. Shit is happening. This young woman, Claire from Canada, is a very, very type A person, and she's making shit happen. So we need help. I also have this guy, Mitch, in Australia who's making stuff happen. There is stuff to do to push this thing forward. I know there's some of you out there who don't think we should have interns, but I think we should because if the dopey empire can be more successful interns could have dopey careers one day which i think would be incredible claire's actual first mission is she set up a merch giveaway on instagram where you share your name you share dopey and your story and you have a chance to win you know some dopey con merch there's a dopey con hoodie there's some dopey hoodies some stuff and she feels like you guys didn't actually participate enough in this instagram giveaway so fucking go participate in this instagram giveaway follow us on social media don't be a stranger follow us everywhere i've also been using this uh other sober app it's called sober together and i've gotten a bunch of dopey people to go on there it's a really interesting app you go on the app and you talk to a camera and uh you check in and then people see what you say about how you feel or recovery or you tell a dopey story and then people respond and it creates this whole universe of addicts and alcoholics helping each other. It's called Sober Together. It's available on the App Store. It's not available for Android users yet. There's a ton of dopey people in there. I've been posting every day for like 11 days. So go to Sober Together, check it out. Uh, they're really nice people. The guy who actually created it also created the uh the cartoon story bots and he created that old crazy weird thing called jib jab where like your head goes on the elves and they dance and stuff he's brilliant and uh and i think he really wants to help addicts so go to sober together oh yeah it's free it's fucking free and you can talk to people and they can talk to you and it's sweet so go to sober together i have to say i've been doing pretty good of late and uh i've been doing good because i'm like doing good things you know 
they say uh, when you make a record, like if you record music, if you have like shit going into the mix, shit always comes out of the mix. And and if you've ever heard the the horrible sounding dopey episodes of the past, it's the same thing with that. The truth is, if you put good things in, you get good things out. And I've been reading, and I've I'm I've re, I'm rereading Siddhartha, which me and Chris used to talk about. Haven't read it in years. It's so fucking good. I'm interested in like having you guys read Siddhartha and doing like a new dopey book club. So if any of you guys are interested in doing a Siddhartha dopey book club, hit me up at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I'm also reading this book by Johan Hari called Stolen Focus. I think he's coming back on the show in January, but his book is, it's very beautiful and it really, it just made me feel better. I feel like too much time on the phone and, and I don't know, Stolen Focus, it's a really, really interesting book. I recommend reading books. It can make you feel good. I also started talking to a, an online therapist, which has also been amazing because he's asking me questions like, how do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to have? And like, what do I want it to look like? Which are basic questions. I just never asked them before, really. I just was like, how can I not be a miserable junkie? How can I whatever? But he's, a- he's asking some interesting questions and I'm answering them, which is why I need to tell you that this episode of Dopey is sponsored by BetterHelp. I wish that life came with a user's manual, but I find that when I get support online in therapy, I understand how to operate my life better. Navigating life can be very complex, and it's great talking to somebody, especially somebody trained, to figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dopeypodcast. Now let's get to Tom Farley. I want to say this. Chris Farley was a brilliant comedian, a brilliant actor, and seeming like just a great guy. I, I remember when I was growing up, he was like part of the new vanguard of Saturday Night Live, and he was so exciting and funny. But what I really remember about Chris Farley is that when I was using, he died of an overdose from speedballs. And I remember using and watching like the E! True Hollywood story and watching these documentaries about him. And um, it was really surreal to meet his brother and to meet his mother because I felt so plugged in on his story. And talking to his brother was incredibly cool. He was super honest, he was super candid, and he was super open and and generous. So without further ado, here he is, older brother of Chris Farley, Tom Farley, author, marketing expert, rehab outreach guru, and uh, again, brother of Chris Farley. Here we go. I'm in a very intimate yet swanky hotel room 
with Tom Farley. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's so great to be here. And and, and yeah, I think the closeness is going to add to the, you know, the, the intimacy discussion. of the yeah, dynamic. Absolutely. And Tom is from, where are you from? Madison, Wisconsin. That's where we grew up, all of us. And I still live there. And Tom is uh, the older brother of comedy legend, addict legend, Chris Farley. And whenever I bring up anything about Chris Farley, everyone just says, that's the fucking funniest guy that ever lived. It's, it, I, I'm all these years later, and after writing a book about him and interviewing all his friends and people that knew him, I'm finally coming around to that. But I literally, I'd started with me having to be the older brother and sharing a bedroom with this maniac. And I'm like, I would tell my friends, stop laughing at this guy. It's not, it's not funny. And it was obviously it was just, <laughs> the stuff he did was hysterical from you know right out of the box. But as an older brother, it was just like, this is embarrassing. How many brothers in the room? There, I was the oldest. We have an older sister, Barb, and then I was the oldest of four boys. So it was me, Chris, and then Kevin and Johnny. All in the same room? Oh, no, in the same room? No, we had, it was Kevin and Johnny uh, slept together, and then Chris and I were, in, you know, for a long time, till I just, like, when we got closer to high school, I'm like, if that, that, that's it. <laughs> they literally created a room out of a, like a little sitting room down the hall. I'm like, yeah, that's, I, I, this has got to stop. Did you get the room down the I hall? I got the room. I got the room initially. And then when I went to college, he moved into that room. And then when he went to college, I, my dad just like literally gutted it. He put like a hot tub in there. Because it was just like, all right, this is, this is done. And I know Kevin is a comedian, an actor. I've heard that too. And was he, did he do that before or after Chris? No, he, Kevin, Kevin was getting his MBA and he got his MBA and he was going to work for my father, just like kind of Chris did. And then Chris just kind of like blew up, you know, when he was on SNL. And I think both my brothers kind of went, yeah, that's what we're doing. As the oldest brother, I was like, you know, I didn't know that was an option. I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like literally all, all of a sudden, all my brothers were down that road making great careers. I'm now, and now my son is out in LA. He went through Second City and he's out in LA now continuing that and you didn't consider it for a second no you know it was interesting i was always in business here in new york doing like i was in financial services doing marketing but i just i i I loved my audience i was always that crazy marketing guy so i loved that now when i started doing public speaking with the chris farley foundation and just with my book and what i do now like when i step on a stage and i look at you know after a whole like career lifetime of just boring, you know, presentations and PowerPoints, I love just being on stage with an audience, just kind of watching me. I get why my brothers and my son went into this field because I just. But the I, pressure wasn't on you to get the laugh. You can just chill oh, yeah. and then get the laugh because actually, no, the funny thing is there was pressure. There was always like, oh, Chris Farley's brother. Well, OK, be Chris Farley's brother. And honestly, if I have to, you know, if I'm being rigorously honest, that probably triggered a lot of my alcoholism trying to be that role for the longest time. And I knew it wasn't right. It was it was an odd fit. And I to cope, I, I drank to be fun to be not to be funny. I, we were always funny, I just, but it was just if they wanted to see, you know, this crazy Farley guy, which wasn't me. OK, I'll give it to him. But I, I need I need fuel. See, that's really interesting to me. And I, I also want to share this. Somebody in the audience, some stalwart audience member, 
messaged me in a place where I don't even get messages. And they're like, oh, I just met Chris's brother, Chris Farley's brother. You need to reach out. And then me being the way I am, rather than emailing you, I just call you, you know, give it a shot. Yeah. And you answered the phone and I was like, oh, I heard you on Artie Lang's podcast. And you were like, I don't remember being on Artie Lang's podcast. And I was like, you were. I heard you. I heard you on it. And uh, it turned out it was your brother. It was Kevin, yeah. Those two seemed like they were a good fit. Yeah. But um, I want to uncover and unpack everything you just said in terms of like you're working for the Chris Farley Foundation and you get sober in that situation, which seems like a really interesting story. But what was it like at home in the first place? Was there alcoholism in the house? Was there addiction? Growing up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, you know, part of my talks now is I open with, like, we had, like, all of the boxes checked. We had this long family history of alcoholism, you know, on, on both sides. We were Irish, and we lived in Wisconsin, you know, and everyone knows the Wisconsin story. So, I mean, it, it, what's interesting, in all of those cases, our family being Irish and living in Wisconsin, drinking and actually drinking to excess is so normative that, you know, it was, it's just, that's what you do. And that's what we did. So what it paint the picture for anybody who's not Irish and from Wisconsin? Well, it's just, you know, it's just always there. It's, it, and it's not like culturally, culturally, it's just, it's just part of the, the shtick. And it's just like, Harry Potter had his wand. We had a scotch, you know, I mean, it was Irish whiskey. I mean, it was, just, you know, that was our thing. And it was just always around and every event, every, you know, every interaction, it was just omnipresent. Did you find yourself drinking to excess as a teenager? Like, were you, did you find yourself predisposed to alcoholism no, yeah. as a kid? I mean, it was very quickly and it was drinking mostly that I just had no off switch. It was amazing. I like, once I started because I, I always felt like I wasn't, you know, up to par with the people. I, you know, I, you know, I went to like I went to Georgetown. I went to you know boarding school in you know out east, and I'm like, I felt like such a fraud. Like I'm not smart as these people. I mean, I, obviously I was. I got in, but I'm like, I just didn't feel like I belonged, and so I drank because I, you know, I had this massive self doubt. I only know this now looking back. You know, I, I work in treatment and I'm like hearing these things and these these moments are like, oh, my God, is that what I was going? <laughs> yeah, that it's sounds amazing. familiar, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, now I get it. Right. And, but, and and you were obviously a high achiever. You got into Ivy League school. Do you think that affected Chris where Chris was like, oh, oh shit? 100 percent. That was my family. It's like you have to you know, this is where you got to you, know, you got to do this. And he kind of, he, yeah, he wanted to be his own. He, he definitely, I, I think, you know, it started off at the Chris, if I have to be, you know, if I have to analyze him, I think it always started off with this kind of low self-esteem that was fueled by this body image. He was always a husky kid. And so, you know, my mom's from Boston. So she, you know, she was always dressing us up and just, right, well, what, like how leprechauns I, or something. No, you look beautiful. That's like, how just, I always dress though. I mean, she had us in Wisconsin wearing Lily Pulitzer. I'm like, like, do you want me to get beat up mom? But you know, we were always in like, you know, nice Brooks brothers and Chris with his, and that just isn't, he was always kind of in the trying to burst out of yeah, his clothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't look right. You know, like, that was valued in my family and he didn't value it. And so he didn't feel valued, I think, by just the way kind of all this pressure. Like, you're going to go 
to this school. And, and he did. He was a smart guy. He got into Marquette, got through Marquette quicker than I got through Georgetown. He I, actually did the four years. I, I added a few. And was, was there alcoholism evident between the two of you before fame and you know success and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, like first of all, it's Wisconsin. So legal age in Wisconsin when we were growing up was 18. Right. So, which means that, you know, is 16. Is what was the age started. difference? Between you and Chris and I? Just shy two years older. So, so you, you would party together. Yeah. I mean, as much as we could. As I said, like, Chris was always just going a little farther down the road than I was comfortable doing. So, but, you know. What did that look like, though? Well, you know, what was really weird is that I was just, as I said, kind of before I had this massive self-doubt. I didn't feel comfortable with people. I didn't, you know, I couldn't talk to girls. I, in high school in Wisconsin, you know, everyone, like, if you were a jock, you had it all. And I was a good athlete. I wasn't, you know, but I did the weird, you know, I wasn't the football, baseball. I was the soccer swimmer, you know, weird stuff. I thought you were going to say fencing. Uh, but no. <laughs> you don't want to put it any sharp objects in any of our hands. So I just always kind of felt uncomfortable. Then I would look at Chris. Who and, and and the whole time trying to maintain this the the you know toe the line as I say like my parents wanted us to do and I'm like I, I was all in I'm like okay I will I'll I'll do this and I'll try get I want to go to uh, a good school and I was doing all this just endless work to do that and I turn around and Chris was just like just being himself and you know tripping over that line that I was trying to toe and just doing everything opposite of me. Looked like he was having a lot more fun. And as he always did, he just had, he had friends everywhere. He, he had, and not just friends, but he had core ensemble level great friends. And that, as an older brother, I'm just like, why is it so hard for me? And it's so easy for him. And I think, you know, Chris drank for his reasons. I, that's, I drank for that reason. So I'm like, something's, I'm not comfortable. Something is not working for me. And he obviously had insane discomfort in his own skin because of his weight, because of his brain. And and obviously he was, you know, a a world class drug addict. You know what I mean? Like, as as we like to say. And and I think for an older brother to be envious of a younger brother's ease, it's a real pressure because you're supposed to be who he looks up to. And it creates and it creates. And I'm sure. Just I can tell by just the way you're talking about it, how kind he probably was to you and how tight you guys actually oh, we, were. We, first of all, were you know, Irish, so we, it always broke into a fight at some point. But, you know, we, that was the Irish <laughs> of it. You know, yes. it was just, we, were, we had very short fuses. But on the same token, you know, and this was my parents, just like we were always together. We did everything together. And so we did love each other. And was, so we all had, we had our back. And if anyone ever uh went after one of my brothers particularly chris like called him fat or something like that i was did, like right there let's go it's, it was go time yeah i've defended the hell out of him even though i had just gotten a fight with him two seconds ago i'm like if somebody i can do that you can't so in in the farley household what came first comedy alcohol or drugs okay now you just really this is when i talk about being in treatment and having those aha moments this was one of the first things when I started at Rosecrans, I was asked to be a speaker on our uh, alumni retreat, a weekend of all the alumni that came through our program. 
and they wanted me to kind of, you know, I was there maybe a couple months and they said, can you speak and tell your story and kind of be the last speaker, kind of, you know, bring on the clowns kind of thing. And I said, sure. And I was listening to all these clinicians kind of get on, you know, and I was listening to this one, one of our clinicians I worked with and she was talking about trauma. And I'm like, well, I know what trauma is. You know, your life is going this way and then trauma. And now it's like left turn and which is, you know, for the big T trauma. And she was talking about something totally different. All these other things, you know, the, the, these little traumas that you accumulate over your lifetime that you don't even know you're, they're there, but you eventually have to address and, and manage that, those emotions, hopefully in a safe and healthy way, but a lot of us, not so much. And so I'm listening. And by the time it got to me, I went, whoa, time out. I'm going to tell my story later, but I got to process this. I go, do you know what trauma was like in my family, in the Farley family? <laughs> Every time I like tell this story, everyone's like, ooh, no, what? I'm like, no, it's not that. <laughs> trauma was that we literally had one emotion. I, I call it one bullet in our, in our emotional you know, gun. One emotion that we used for everything. Obviously, that was humor. So if somebody was stressed out in my family, we laughed. If somebody like fell and hurt themselves, we laughed. Not to be mean, we didn't like their pain. We didn't like seeing other people in pain. And we thought that our humor could bring them out of it. If somebody was frustrated, angry, we, we definitely laughed if they were angry. But, and if somebody was experiencing joy, we laughed, which isn't the same thing. We couldn't even go to the positive end. And we got obviously really good at it because all three of my brothers are, became professionals. Now my son's doing it. But we didn't develop any of these other emotions so that that coping mechanism of humor turned into a trauma. And I'm, in the, I'm literally at this, this webinar going, oh, that's it? That's what's going on? That's what our, and I notice that now when we get, like my sister particularly, she'll be talking about something. It's like, oh, so-and-so lost his job. Uh, I'm like, that's not funny, Barb. Right. You know, and she, but that's. I do the same stuff. My wife gets angry at me because I try to relate to my older daughter only with comedy. Yeah. And like, no matter what, and, and I think it's funny when I threaten to beat her. Like, I think that's funny. I go, you're going to, I go, I'm going to give you the old one too. And I've never touched my daughter violently. No. I think beating my kid sounds funny when it, I say it, but it's not, it's, it's not, not funny. It's, it's not, it's, it's not, not being perceived in the same way. It's like when my kids. She used were, to think it was funny. She doesn't think it's funny no, anymore. I, when my kids like were growing up with little kids and they're like, I'm daddy, I'm afraid of the dark. And I would like go, Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I would too, if I had that under my bed, right. you know, and right. like these kids are terrified right, now. Right. You didn't help them. You right. made it worse. Right. Right. And, and I, I didn't get it. I didn't know. That's how I, because worked. we want to relate and we want to make someone feel comfortable. Yeah. And in both of our experiences, comedy brought people close yeah. to us and it disarmed them. And Chris was one of the great, Masters. I mean, it's amazing that your brother was one of the great masters it, at this. It, yeah, no kidding. I mean, it, and humor is that power. It, it it really is one of the greatest emotions to manage our emotions. But there's also other things too, like empathy and all these other things that can manage your emotions too. There's so many good <laughs> things that you can use that aren't comedy. Empathy is. My wife is a social worker, and she has a lot of really good tools. And sometimes I'm like, that's so cheesy. Don't do that. But it's a great tool and it's a, it's another way to bring somebody close to you well like until i got into the, i remember the first time i got into recovery and i started really exploring some of these other emotions and i'm like for the first time in my life and like they said like one of the first things like well do a gratitude journal i remember the first time i'll go okay tom probably gratitude journal and i'm like 
for the next hour looking at this blank page going, really? Nothing? You're not grateful for anything? <laughs> and it wasn't that I wasn't grateful for things, but I just, it was hard for me to just identify and go there. I was thinking like the, the big gratitude things. I'm, I'm so grateful for my kids. And I'm like, no, no. It's these little things that happen every day. You're missing these like mindful moments like yeah. to, to enjoy the sky yeah. or, or, or the, yeah. the lobby or your yeah. mom being funny or I'm whatever. I'm grateful that I have a moment of my day where I can think of these things. Grateful for just that moment. Yeah. So. There's, a, there's a guy at my meeting and he says, I want you to try to come up with something you're not great. He's like, he's so about gratitude. He's like, what are you not grateful for? Wow. And I'm like, well, I can make a long list because I have problems. But he's like, he can't identify one thing he's not grateful for. Wow. Which is a beautiful thing. He called his Johnny Jukebox. He has jukeboxes in the Bronx. And he collects the money out of the jukeboxes. Oh, that's so neat. He'll be on Dopey eventually. You can hear his story. Oh, that's good. Now, I think it's really interesting... Like, I think, first of all, I was like starstruck to meet Chris Farley's mother. You saw my face. I, know, I, I was so excited that you caught us in the lobby. It's like, this is the one. Is that annoying for somebody like to meet me and me have this weird reaction oh, to your no. mother? We're so used. To, it's so part of our life now. And, and, and I love it. We all know that mom is is just first of all, it's where we get all of our crazy. You know, she's this Boston Irish. And my grandfather, her father was just crazy. You know, just but just so awesome and fun. And so that's where that, you know, my dad had the really conservative, safe. He had a great sense of humor and he told the right joke and the right on. He was just great. And he had this magnetism. But my mom had this fearlessness and she does this this whole fearlessness of comedy. She just I offered to take her bag and she gave me this look like I'm not crippled. You fucking idiot. It just it was a look. Yeah, <laughs> I got that all through a LaGuardia just now. Like, Mom, can I take the bag? I, you just go, go, let's go, let's go. Let's go. Now you're in recovery. When did alcoholic consequences show their face for you? When did I? Well, I mean, if I look back, I mean, I'd see it all over. The, I mean, kind of it's a joke amongst my my college buddies like you know another business card tommy i mean i job losses like all over the place a divorce just you know financial you know it was just always this always some little struggle and of course always somebody else's fault so unable to find your part yeah so i mean all of that stuff uh that's what i said like for you know there, there were times i had pulled together some many years of sobriety Yet I was still causing these train wrecks, but uh, it wasn't until I got in recovery that I realized that sobriety just gave me the clarity to deal on the real stuff, you know, the mind stuff that I was going through, that how I process stuff. That was that was an amazing moment. But I look back and I'm like, there, there's so many, you know, if all you've got again is is working on your humor for to 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 make relationships, that those aren't going to be very functioning relationships. Because it's one note, yeah. Because it can't, it can't be multidimensional, right? Right. And and when's the first time you saw that Chris was going to have a really hard time existing in this world? Well, again, it was, and again, it was that, it was that, it was, you know, it's the same it thing. Out, it's that double edged sword. Yeah. Well, it came out here, and it's funny because you know, you know, my dad was like, you know, I don't understand how he can't manage his drinking. I, you know, I go to work every day, and we're like. Okay, Dad, you work for yourself. So when you walk in at ten o'clock, no one, no one's yelling at you. I get fired. You don't. 
you know. So, so when's the first time was it clear that he when couldn't he, manage? When he got out thinking? here and he got this literally the dream job of his life. He comes to New York. To New York. I was in Lauren New York. Michaels. I was in New York and he came in and like, oh my god, and we're still like, oh my god, this is really happening. It was. That alone was a funny story when he... Tell the story. I like it. Well, it was interesting. So I was lived in Upper East Side, and he was at Second City. He's like, I'm coming in. And, you know, they're putting me up at, a, you know, at the Intercontinental. And, but it really wasn't an audition. Like, you see people's audition tapes, old audition SNL tapes. That wasn't it. It was just Chris coming in to meet people. Lauren had already decided. You know, absolutely. So he, he spent the day... Kind of like on the 17th floor at 30 Rock. Actually, it was a Saturday, so it was down at 8H, just kind of watching people. Just kind of like, does he fit in? You know, do you like him? And then at like about 6 o'clock, he gives me this call. It's like, and just kind of, you, you could barely hold it in. It's like, do you want to go to SNL tonight? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, they're letting us go. So we went that night, and we're like, the two of us, like, this is on. We were like in Lauren's office kind of overlooking 8H and there was kind of like a sliding glass door that looks out into the into the sets and we're like there like this is amazing. there were just so many things going on we're like pinching ourselves like this is not we, it was just two brothers at this amazing event experience not even thinking for a second that one What's of them gonna was going to like that was going to be his well one of the greatest attributes of your brother was his humility like yeah, his humility, absolutely. you could, you don't, you don't even know him, but you could just feel it coming off of him. And I can imagine like, that's like before stardom. So the humility is like compounded yeah. with fear and excitement and adrenaline. And it's like, it's an amazing story. Do you think when, when Lauren is like, I want Chris to be in this thing, he's like, I found my new Belushi. Do you think that was a thought in his head? I, I don't know how you can't. Yeah. I mean, there was that, what Chris, what Chris brought, and again, this is the, the similarities with John is because of where they learned their craft, mm. you know, at Second City from the same guy, Del Close, who said to Chris, same thing he said to Belushi, you know, you've got to just attack the stage and kill the audience. You know, it was just don't leave anything. You just put it all out there. And obviously Belushi said OK to that. And Chris said the same thing. And I think after kind of in that 90s where. You know, there were still, you know, the comedy was, you know, the Seinfeld with the skinny black tie, you know, kind of humor. There was also the this kind of grunge in the music. You know, there was like, we need that. This undercurrent. Yeah, we punk. need that danger we right back in SNL. And, and I think they got it in spades with Chris. And, you know, and that was, again, the legacy of Belushi and Dell. And did know. he talk about John Belushi, Chris? Not really. I mean, he was growing up, you know, he read Wired and he was like, wow, that's oh, holy shit. That was, he was like freaked out by that, you know, like that was, you know, the drugs and everything, you know. And it's funny when I wrote my book, I wrote it with Tanner Colby, who had done previously a book similar on Belushi. So Tanner's like he, he's got both of these people totally in his cranium, the poor guy. You know, he, he's the subject matter expert on Chris and Belushi. And we've had these talks. And he said, you know, honestly, Tom, you know, like I've, I've studied them both. And it's like Chris didn't want to be Belushi. He want, you know, at, at one point, John Belushi was the most famous person on the planet. For two years, there was nowhere he could go. And Chris goes, that's what I want. 
and I will pay whatever price it is. I don't want to be that person. And I, and Chris could never be John Belushi because Belushi was kind of you know a little dark, and there was so much of Chris that was so the opposite, so light, and uh, so innocent. And, and yeah, Belushi, yeah, his never, comedy wasn't based not, on not, innocence. Yeah, so he was never going to be like John. But Chris just wanted that level. He wanted, Stats. and he want, also wanted to to stand out above the crowd as this different kind of comedy. You know, John Belushi brought this different element to the comedy field, and Chris goes, "I want, I want to stick out like that." Did you see the? There was a documentary on Showtime like a few years ago. It was called Belushi. It was really good documentary. Finally, about yeah. It's, I didn't. I don't know if I did see that. It's it's painful. It's an amazing. Yeah documentary just about addiction and and kind of the you know the psyche of somebody like belushi who died from addiction and his story i totally recommend it it's really yeah. crazy did chris grow up doing drugs were you doing drugs as a kid no and he didn't either no, no. not even no me. not at all like i you know chris didn't even start drinking till it was like late in his junior in high school and so he would have been 17 and as i said drinking he was 18 so and that was just like wow what was interesting about like all of my family, as I said, we came from all these elements of normative drinking, but my sister, Barb, to this day can have like a couple glasses of wine and she doesn't have that's it. it. Right. Kevin, Johnny and I have no off switch. I mean, when we start drinking, it's go time till we pass out or whatever. And then Chris, it was not just drink, 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 but it was always what's the next thing. He had that drug kind of I need I need something more, something different. He was and he, because, as you can tell from his comedy, he was a risk taker and he was that way with his substances, too. How old were you the first time you had a drink? Drink? Yeah. A freshman year in high school, I guess. So just a couple of years younger than he was. But you started a bit. Uh, earlier. Yeah. And then sophomore year, I got in with a crowd. I didn't play a sport one one season. And I got in with this this pot crowd. And I, like that, my sophomore year in high school, it was just, I was that kid. I'm like, and I came out of that. That kid being a stoner kid? Yeah. And I came out of that going, that sucked. I didn't like the people I was hanging out with. I was kind of like, and I said this to Chris years ago, years later, I said like, Chris, these aren't your friends. You got to like what, for lack of a better word, I got, you know, at that moment after that year, I said I got really kind of snobby about who I was hanging out with. And Chris, yeah, just that word alone was like, no, I, no, these are good people. I'm like, okay, he just like, they're he, not. He though. wanted everyone to love he, him. Absolutely. So he wasn't going, yeah, you are a snob. I'm like, ah, okay. I'm just trying to protect myself. If that's what, and I'm just calling it that, but. I just didn't like, I didn't like being in these shitty apartments or somebody's shitty basement. And my wife says dirt bags. Yeah, that's, that's it. My that's wife was a dirt bag. Yeah. I, I was a horrible stoner, but I, I kind of avoided that scene. But like, uh, I, I get your point. I get you your know, point. You know, because drinking was so social. It seems so antisocial. It seems so like I'm in a basement hiding out doing stuff. Right. Like when I was drinking, it was fun. It was social. I was getting laughs. I, w you know, that I'd like that's I just loved drinking because of that. Because the ambiance, it, the, it made you feel like who you wanted to and be. I was, yeah, I was in I could I could go to really cool bars. You know, I got here to New York. I would find all the really cool bars. I'm like, this is this is the life. This is where you 
you know, this is where you drink. PJ Clark's. Yeah. P oh my God. <laughs> the, the, the Oak bar in the Plaza, you know, when I had some extra, can- you know, when my brothers came to New York and when Chris first came to New York, I'm like, I, you're like, I'm showing you New York. I'm, you're going to go to the, we're going to get a martini at the Oak bar, like in this beautiful place. And then we go to, you get a, a martini at 21 club. And yeah, it was. So what was drinking with Chris in Manhattan? Like in the beginning? Honestly, it was, he was working. So I drank probably more. Chris was working his ass off. Driven, right? Yeah. He would do stuff like when they wouldn't have a show some weekend, he would go off or like at the after parties. It was, you know, he, for, for me and, and for Chris, it's like, we're really truly introverts. Everyone thinks all the Farleys are so extroverts. Like, no, but if that's where you want us to go, we'll expend every ounce of of energy just will give it all but then i like i need to just decompress somewhere i need to like go away and isolate and uh, and, and for chris it was I, i'm done entertaining everyone and i now i need to kind of watch tv in ma- my room no i need to like drink I, I he needed to explode right you know he needed to like burn it know, out burn it out i get it yeah. i get it and in that period where chris is you know, his star is rising and you're working here. How often are you at SNL? <laughs> I, it was great. I used to go all the time. And like, and, and I would just hang out in his dress room. I wouldn't, I'd go, I don't need a ticket. I'll just hang out in your dress room. I just want to see like, at one time, I remember one time he called me, do you want to go to the show tonight? I'm like, maybe like, who's playing? And he's like, I'm playing you dick. <laughs> like you can't come out. Like, I'm like, if it was a cool like band, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'll definitely go. Do you remember, like, what what were your favorite experiences going to 30 Rock or wherever? Where, where, did they do it in 30 Rock? Yeah. Yeah, 8H. I had some just funny, just weird experiences. I'll tell you about a couple of them. Um, like, the first band, we when Chris was, like, quote-unquote, that audition, the show we went to, I don't remember who was the guest, but Clapton played. And oh I was my like, God. whoa. Did Chris meet? Meet him? Did he do that? I'm sure that I'm sure he didn't do that Paul McCartney bit with Clapton, though. I don't think. No, no. Then, then, well, that's a whole the McCartney story. Is that's all different shit. Tell me the story. Oh, fuck. What happened? Okay, talk about dopey shit. So I don't know. It was, he had done this, and with that Chris Farley show skit was so so much more than Matt Foley. That was so Chris. That was the Chris I grew up with. That I had to share a bedroom with, and like, go to bed, dude. Stop asking me these questions. <laughs> So that day, would he ask them to you in that kind of style? Like, yeah, no, like it was amazing to see it, him doing that with Martin Scorsese. And I'm like, oh my god, it was just he would we'd be in bed and he would go like, remember that, that scary movie? We saw? <laughs> that scary movie? So I was like, hey, we just turn off the TV. It's like, yeah, that's pretty scary. What would you rather be? in a room with Frankenstein or the Wolfman? And I'm like, okay. you know. Frankenstein, because I can outrun him. It's like, no, no, it's a really small room. He definitely got you. I'm like, all right, the Wolfman. He like he bite me, and I'd, you know, I'd be, it'd be over. No, no, no you turn a werewolf. I'm like, would you just, you freak? That's, Go to bed. So you, tell me, let me hear the Paul McCartney story. This is the funniest so thing I ever heard. A buddy of mine was getting married. Uh, one of my Georgetown buddies, and we were having, gonna have the bachelor party in New York. So a couple of us lived here. Then a lot of people came in from out of town, and so we met for lunch down on like 23rd street and the, the thought was let's see each other get get riled up for the night you know pound them down but then go back to our hotels or apartments 
and sleep it off until it was go time again. So I, that's what everyone did. But I took two of my buddies and I'm like, you want to see Chris? You want to go up and see Chris? And they go, yeah. I couldn't knew I could take the whole group. So two of the three of us went up to 8H at 30 Rock. <laughs> and and one of one of my buddies, Neil, was is a huge, you know, Beatles. And actually both of them were huge Beatles. I was like, let's go see Paul. Paul's here this weekend. And but we were half in the bag. And so we get up there and Chris couldn't have been nice. He, Chris, these are my older brother's friends. So he made me look like a king. Like, yeah, I'll show you around. So he was showing all of us around the, you know, the whole studio and just like, you know, yeah. and then we go by this door that's closed and behind the door we hear, Hey, Jude. Like, <laughs> all of us go like, we're not moving until that door opens. We're like, and Chris goes, all right. And it's song over, and he comes, he was practicing. So, he, and Paul comes out and he goes, Hey, Paul, I want you to meet my brother Tommy. You know, and he takes one look at me and he goes, Ah, the serious brother. I got me one of them too. I'm like, Oh, okay. You want, <laughs> yeah. you want to go? And I'm like, Hey, Paul, you know, um, good to meet you. But Jagger was on last week. And, you know, you got some big shoes to fill. And he goes, Yeah, <laughs> he's been dogging me my whole career. And then I went one step further. I'm like, I go, But hey, man. This is SNL. This could really make make your career. Make your this is gonna make your career. And Chris, the look on Chris's face, like, oh my god. And then my my buddy Neil chimes in, is like, yeah, but it's huge TV audience. And like maybe some Grecian formula, you know, kind of doctor up. The, and Chris goes, you cocky George sounds something. You get that? Yeah, literally by the ear in front of Paul. Yeah, just like you're gone. Right. And like, it just literally. Drags us to the yeah to the elevator like I can't you you giving shit to a beetle and I'm like yeah and we were drunk so we were like yeah okay and he took it well though he did but it was like it was like okay I gotta work here and like this is like, it's amazing I think the most amazing part of the story is that he's still practicing Hey Jude fucking thirty years later yeah this is a little sound check yeah totally he's a real it's amazing um, the whole thing is amazing when do you start to see that Chris is doing drugs. I knew in college he, you know, he would talk about weed. He loved weed, you know, that was his thing. And and then he got into mushrooms, and he loved. And I'm like, okay, as long as he keeps it kind of earthy, I guess we're all right, you know. And you never smoked weed with him or ate mushrooms with him. I probably smoked and never. I've never done mushrooms. You've never done mushrooms. No. All right, that's interesting. I know. So you know, I'd hear these things, and I'm like, all right. You know, it didn't seem like it was that bad, you know, but he was, you know, the, the, the pot, like, like he was like heavy into that. I'm like, yeah, I, I've done that. That's not a good thing. But what do you, you know, it did, still didn't seem like it was going to be because he was still like working. He, wor- he was doing his stuff. He was on Second City. And then he was on SNL. SNL, yeah. And it's not like he was like, I'm going to stop smoking weed, I'm sure. I'm sure he was just doing yeah. his thing. And, to, and again, to us, like, no, it's the alcohol is going to kill us. We all we knew that from the start. That, you know, that's what's going to do it. So when he got out here, you know, he started talking about cocaine. It was like, and it was late 80s. And I had some friends and I had, I went down that road a little bit and I didn't like it. And then there was one night in, in Madison, back home in Madison, that we were, we were, came back from New York and, and we were in some parking garage late at night. And Chris had, you know, and that was the only time we were in, ever did drugs together he did these lines and i'm like ah you know i didn't like coke to begin with i 
really didn't like doing it with my little brother. What did it, it make just, you feel? Like? It just felt like God, I, you know, I'm supposed to be a better older brother than this. I just felt that, but I also wanted to bond with him. And you know, there was a, Chris. I, you know, we always had this kind of love hate kind of thing going on because we were kind of different, but we were brothers. And so, whenever we kind of grew apart, we tried to find some way to kind of bring it back in. And I, at that point, I probably thought it was doing some drugs with him. And it, boy, I I knew right away. It's like this ain't it. When you did coke with him, how was, was he on SNL at that point, or was it before all that? I think it was before all that. It was definitely before all that. So you knew it was kind of like in the background of of what he was doing. Like he, yeah, he, he was he liked drugs, and it was yeah. and it was obvious. It escalated to such a crazy point in New York. When did you start being like concerned? Well, again, our concern was he's going to lose this dream job, and he and he lost it for a couple, you know. He, he got suspended and it was bad. And so he started going into, you know, started his, you know, treatment run. He went through a lot of treatment things and he still kind of would snap back. But it, even then it wasn't really, the family wasn't really engaged. We saw it as Chris's problem. We don't have a problem. You know, it's, it's weird. And I, I noticed the first time I went into an AA meeting, I felt the same thing years ago. When I was, you know, just being sober, not being in recovery, I'm like, oh, I'll try AA. And I remember the first time going in and thinking, like, well, I, you know, I don't drink as much as that guy. Or right. That guy takes drugs too, so I guess I'm okay. I don't need to be here. That was what it was like in our family. As long as there was Chris around, he was the one who could be the. We fuck didn't up. have to have the problem, right? And I, you know, I have this image. I, you know, I talk about it all the time. The one time, he, you know, I think maybe the second time he came out of Hazleton and it was a Christmas time and, and the family was all together. We're all like uh, in college or out of college. And Christmas Eve, we're opening presents and drinking the brandies. And I have this image in my head of just seeing Chris there with his mug of coffee, just trying to be sober. And the rest of us just doing our shit like we always did. Not seeing that like I, now that I'm in recovery, I'm like, Fuck. oh, my God, right, right. what a hard thing to try to be in this family sober when we just didn't see it. And did he ever talk about struggling with being sober or struggling with drugs? Did he talk about it at all? No, it, he was, he, the, the, the key for him, he had a couple of stints in treatment and he would come back to New York and it would just, something would trigger and he would be back down the road again. And then like second time coming out of, out of Hazleton, he did one thing differently. Hazelden said, well, we got this new sober living house in Lower Manhattan. Maybe you should do that. And he goes, okay. And so instead of going back to his nice big apartment on Riverside Drive, he went down to this, you know, he was on TV every night, uh, every weekend and checking into a cot for three months, you know, and working his recovery program. And he came out of that, you know, with a program, with a, with a new, and, that's when he just became the funniest guy. When drugs and alcohol weren't robbing him of this talent, you—I mean, it's just like holy. He just went. He just—he lit he, up. He lit up, and he all of a sudden, from my measurements, he started dressing well. I'm like, okay, he's starting to act like a professional, you know, a superstar. Should. Yeah, and I was really proud of that. But I was never more proud. Again, now that I'm, I didn't know it at the time. I was just like, this is different. He asked me, he said, Tommy, can you, uh, there were two things, two, two stories. He said, um, I'm, I'm doing my like third anniversary of sobriety and I'm doing a meeting. Can you 
can you come and be there? And I like, I didn't know what, what are you talking? I don't know what's, what me, you know, I, I knew it was Ames. I'm like, what do you mean you're doing? You're sharing me. So he gave me the address and this was so Chris. I'm like, I got the address from walking and all of a sudden I'm getting farther and farther on the West side. And I feel like I, all of a sudden I'm realizing I'm in the middle of hell's kitchen. I'm like, that son of a bitch. Like, why did he do this to me? And I got to this building where the address was. And I'm like, I saw people walking in and going upstairs. And I'm like, shit, is this really where he's been going for three years to this meeting? It looked like it looked like something out of Beirut. You know, every bum from the neighbor was up there. And I got up there and there was Chris at the at the at the at a table. The podium, whatever, yeah. You know, in this blazer, and everyone else is just like, I don't know what they were. But he's in his little blazer and he's saying, you know what? I am no different from you, from anyone in this room. And I'm in the back room going, yeah, yes, you're a little different. <laughs> right. Come on, man. And he starts talking like I woke up this morning hoping and praying that I would be sober today, just like everyone here. And we, we now here we are at the end of the day. We did it. You know, we get cake and coffee at the, as the payoff. Like, isn't life great? And I'm it's like, incredible. Who, who there was this is guy? this guy? I'm like, I, I, I had never seen that aspect of Chris. Um, were you sober then? No. So were, were you haunted by it at all? Were you like, maybe I need to make some different life no, choices? No, I was really happy for Chris. I was really, it was kind of neat, you know, to see that. And then the other story that I was, that I was you know, I, I love to talk about is, is when my son was born in, so this was, he was born in 94, so late 94, so he was probably in his fourth year at SNL, close to his last. And my son had like, he was in New York hospital and he had some kind of thing with his heart. They go, well, we got to keep him, and you know, for a week, you know, to get this this hole in his heart healed. But mm -hmm. he was like, he was this big hulking kid. He was very healthy. So the week after that, my wife came home, and we went to pick Tommy up at New York Hospital. And Chris had an apartment down on Seventeenth and Second. And we go, Chris, can you take the two older girls? You know, we had uh, our two older girls were like two and and three at the time. Can you can you take the girls? And we go, yeah, sure. And he was so like. Really? It's like, I'm so like, yeah. So we come into the city to drop the girls off. I'm ringing this doorbell outside. It's saying no, no answer. I'm like, ah, you know, you're always kind of like scared of the that. other shoot a drop. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, dude, what happened? Like, tell me this. And, and just when I was like, and my wife's like, oh, man, now what do we do? I look up the block and I see Chris come around the corner with these two bags first of all two huge purple barney dolls stuffed big stuffed animals with these bags of like filled with cheetos ice cream <laughs> like and and movies from from blockbuster like disney movies he's like i have yeah, so i'm so excited and we're like oh man and he was so happy that that i asked him he's to, proud to that he could the, actually take do the it girls and we and he, we took pictures and it, there were some of the greatest pictures of my girls with with their uncle just with the Cheetos and the Barney doll. It was just it was a great that Chris in recovery was was amazing to see. Do you remember the relapse? Oh God, yeah, I was um, with him. I think it was the the, the the relapse. So again, I was in living in Manhattan still. So he was after SNL. So he was doing. Uh, he wasn't in SNL. You know, he had just got done, and he was doing Black Sheep. He, you know, he went out. That was his next movie. 
And he wasn't really happy with it. He wanted to do other things, but they, you know, it was a two movie deal. David needed a him to like, I need, I need a movie. Spade. You, yeah. Spade. Spade needed a movie. And they, you know, they, they, they want us to do another Farley Spade movie. It's like, you know, and you're, you're about to like launch. So David knew it. David was smart enough to know, like, I got to get him now. And so they did this, they fast tracked this movie. And Chris was, what was another amazing thing about Chris was I, I, I always looked at him as, as this knucklehead that just had this natural talent. And this was the time when I saw that, holy crap, he knows his craft. He really became an expert in, and stuff and and unfortunately he had to do this movie and he knew it wasn't funny he, he worked so hard so he said we're doing a sneak preview out in um jersey you know can you want to come i'm like yeah you know we're gonna sneak in the back you mean dave we're gonna sneak in the back and it's gonna be a, like a audience viewing see what it looks like and so i pick him up his home he's at the waldorf or something like that and i go to his home there's you know the limo pickups up in a second and he's in his room and he's like going in the into the mini bar just like putting all these like mini bottles in his pockets i'm like what dude you know you've been sober for like three years what do you what are you doing i had no i didn't know how this worked and he goes ah you know the limo drivers like you know like they like when i give them you know i kind of hand out bottles that didn't even talk to me like to the driver yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, it made sense to me yeah. like sure i would too if right. i was driving all night so uh, okay so we go to this this because he didn't want to admit yeah you. oh god yeah and so we get to this movie theater and david's there sherry lansing from the studios there so i could tell that he was just he knew the movie wasn't so good but he had all these like big people and like this is he he just couldn't handle it and he started i don't know what else he was doing but i you know at one point before the movie he goes i gotta go to the bathroom and I'm like, yeah, I do too. So we go, and it was just like this one stall kind of room. And I walk in with him. He goes, what are you doing? I'm like, go to the bathroom. I'm like, dude, we've done this our entire lives, you know, at the same time. He goes, no, I need, I, I need my privacy. I'm like, okay, prima donna. Okay, star. And But, <laughs> I, you know, that's what he was doing. He was in there. You think he was doing coke? Oh, I know he was. Because then I'm like, okay, movie's over. I'm going home. Chris was going out. And I get this call the next day from my father's like, what the hell did you do? I'm like, what? He goes, he ruined his apart his uh, his hotel room, and he's you know he's he trashed the hotel, trashed the hotel room, you know, and it was just it was like full on relapse episode. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I can see that. I didn't when I look back, I'm like, that's what he was doing. I like, you know what? I didn't know. And do you have any sense? Because like he was, fa he famously was doing speedballs at the end, right? Yeah. Oh well, yeah, I didn't know. You have? About did it. you have any idea when he started with heroin? I knew when I, I, you know, I yeah, I did. And when he, so when he got when that stretch of sobriety, we would sit down and, and talk. And he said, Tommy, I remember him telling me this. He goes, Tommy, like now that I'm in recovery, I can, I you know, I I can live this life. I can give up booze and weed and i love those two things more than i'm like i loved them but i can give them i can give that up i'm thinking the right way but i didn't take heroin that many times somebody gave it to me and i said okay that is the devil tommy because that is on my mind all the time when did he talk to you about that this was at his tail end of his snl career and again he had he had been sober for three you know 
he had taken some heroin, you know, sporadically at that last time, that like his second year on SNL, second, and that's when he like you need treatment. It, w- it wasn't because of the drinking or the. It was I think, and Chris even knew like something's happened here. I've crossed a line. Yeah, I've crossed a line, and so and he managed to do this sobriety thing, and then working this recovery, and it was on the. The, the booze, weed, and coke front, he was like, I, I, I can do this. I can do this recovery if it was just that, but it ain't. Like, I can walk into a bar and not get triggered, like, you know, like, oh, I need a drink. But I, like, see, like, a, a, a smell or, right. you said, like, a, a, or somebody that looks like somebody that, you know. Sure. It, it was like, and, and it, it was front of my, it was like, there it is. No, I, I mean, I, I was, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a heroin addict yeah. in recovery. And, and I just told you we went to the Zoom about cravings. And it's like cravings are everywhere and they're yeah. the weirdest things. And you don't know why. It's because heroin is so fucking insidious. And I, so he's telling me about this. And I'm like, and this was 25 years ago. I'm like, wow, really? And until I got into the treatment field years later and met a lot of people that, you know, had that experience. I, had that experience I'm like, oh. Chris, talk to me about this. See, that's one of the reasons that I brought up Belushi, not because of of his style, but because of the drugs that he did. And that the fact that that Chris did the same drugs and had the same style. And it made me wonder if he's like, I need to do this to be that or if it if it quelled the same thing in both of them. I, I can see that I could. I, you know, who knows? There, there's an easy argument to be made for that. I, I, I'm not I, making any. No, no. I'm yeah, just. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, right. I could, I could, I could see support it. that. Right. I, I, but I also just think that just the way Chris was, it, it was always something more. It was it had nothing to do with Belushi. It was just a f- pure, absolute. You know, this is what addiction does. I. There more. are some people that need the next thing. You know, yeah. otherwise, why the hell would anybody be messing around with fentanyl? If it wasn't the next thing, More, I mean, right. I mean, it is, it is a death sentence. But to some people, all it is is the next thing. It's more, right? And it's and it's like, and when you talk about him needing to explode, uh, it's also you know the oblivion kind of does the trick, so you don't have to explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's, I guess I don't know. Well, I mean, it's yeah. you know, it, I get it, it. It's all consuming. I've read a lot about him, and I've seen a lot of you know, weird kind of TV movies about Chris. And it always goes back to that Chippendales sketch. Yeah. Like that, that one's the, I mean, there's so many iconic sketches that Chris was in, but supposedly that one fucked him up. Nah. No. You know, um, yeah, possibly. Here's when I did my book and I interviewed Chris Rock and he was the one of the first time person that pointed that out, how messed up that was. Why would they make Chris do that? And first of all, I wasn't going to dispute that. That's Chris Rock's experience. And I wanted that in my book. But what I was thinking at the time was like, you're so wrong. Because I had seen I've seen Chris do that Chippendales skit since 12 (laughs) years old. I mean, every bar we went to in college, you know, they were literally the band would go out and break. It's like, all right, we'll see you in 15 minutes. And they pipe in music and we all go to the bar and we'd turn around like, what's Chris doing? And he'd be out alone on the dance floor with his shirt off doing the exact same skit way before Chip. And like, I, so to That's me, funny. it was a series of stuff. There was also a, the, the opening, you know, the monologue 
that he did when he came back to host SNL. And he was really messed up then. And he was, you know, I'm not going to get fucked up tonight. You know, he was like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm, you know, it, it, this whole thing about him being such a messed up guy. And there was also another skit they made him do called Relapse Guy. You know, a guy that's constantly relapsed. I'm like, so they were constantly hitting that. And was that, I think, was kind of mean. It's really not, it's people that don't understand addiction right and they have to live with it now too because it's like you take and it's and it's crazy in that world where you have figures who are dying all over the place for since time and memoriam you know and and to have somebody as fragile and as addicted as chris and to play the comedy against it it's a really fucking risky maneuver it's balls because you're banking on the fact that he won't die you know right you because you don't you don't you don't want to go there you don't want to think that and yeah, at a certain point, yeah, it's it's funny till it's not, and and you know, and so you you start writing that script because it's funny, and then all of a sudden it's not, and you then you but you keep writing, and yeah, it's well, it's, something similar happened to us. Like my my partner, who I started the show with, his name was Chris. We would talk about the greatest show would be when one of us relapsed, you know, and then he relapsed and he yeah. died, and half the audience thought it was a stunt. They didn't think it actually had happened. And like, and I was, and part of me hoped, like I had a dream where I thought he was, he was alive and it was a lie. You know what I mean? Like the whole thing didn't really happen because it's so crazy. When he died, where were you? How did you find out? Uh, That's interesting. Well, so I was, um, you know, so this was, you know, 97, I don't think I even had a cell phone. I was living in Fairfield, Connecticut. Well, two two stories. Like I'll go back to that last hosting thing. I was working in Greenwich for a bank. And it was Wednesday. And I remember calling my wife. I'm like, and, you know, she, she, she called me, when are you coming home? Every night, every day. When are you coming home? <laughs> um, <laughs> standard call. And I go, you know, it's weird. It's Wednesday. I know Chris is in town doing SNL this week. And I'm like, he hasn't called me. Like, it's weird. Because if he's in town, he was living in California. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's or in, in Chicago and California. Yeah, he's a movie like, star, and he's coming yeah. to New York to host the show. Like, Why wouldn't he call you? Yeah. Because he knows if he doesn't, I'm going to tell mom, mom and dad. But anyway, uh, my wife said, like, just go to the city and see if you find, you know, like, go. I'm like, yeah, I should. And I went. I drove down, and I went to his apartment. And I was a play, he had, he, they had him in the Waldorf. And I called up his room. Is like, hey, hey, man. And, you know, it was one of these, like, let me, I, I am way off the reservation. I don't want anyone in the family to see this, even though the whole country is going to see it this weekend. But so he said, yeah, uh, good to see you. I'm glad you came on. Um, we're gonna, I'm just about to go over to the show to, you know, to we're going to do some writing tonight, obviously. So we get in this limo, this limo, and they had this, like, intern there, this young intern that was supposed to watch him. And Chris goes, yeah, I got to pick up some friends. And uh, can you go to this address? And next thing I wear on like, you know, 130th and I don't know what, East Harlem. And he picks up, I mean, it looked like a scene right out of the movie, Arthur. These, these two <laughs> girls come with these tight, you know, hooker pants. Classic know? prostitution. Classic. Yes. And this intern's looking at me and I'm like, dude, you're getting paid for this. I'm out. I'm like, this is your job. And we go up to, you know, the studio with these two girls and everyone's like, and I'm seeing all these people I knew, everyone else and now they're like, Tommy, what? I'm like, ah, I don't know. 
and he's just he's going into everyone's office trying to like let's come up with some ideas and i'm sitting there with these two girls i'm like where did you go to school i don't know <laughs> right. like, it was weird and i'm like i go i you know I'll, i I'm, i gotta go home i gotta go you're 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 okay you're okay. i gotta go you're okay and the last thing i remember i he was i, I walked out and he was in this room with tracy morgan and jim brewer and those those three were, I don't know what they were talking about. They were coming up with ideas and they were just laughing their frigging balls off. And I just like, wow. I, I still, and I've told Jimmy Brewer this many times. We were good friends. I'm like, you know, that was the last time I saw Chris and I'll, that laughter will stay with me. Thank you. You know, I know he wasn't in the greatest, but I heard him just splitting you, all three of you just, it was one it was and that's everything it's everything it was so great so the next day i went back i got a good friend of ours from wisconsin who chris just couldn't bullshit he, the guy um kevin cleary who we're gonna go down actually my mom and i are we're gonna go down to 9 11 and say a prayer over his grave you know that's where he ended up how did he die there he was in the 80 he was in the tower two and he went down with the ship yeah and so we're going to go say hi to Kevin. But Kevin was, Chris's kind of, they were tight. You, yeah, they were tight. And Chris couldn't bullshit him. You know, Kevin was just, he was so patient and, and care. he was just an amazing guy. And so I go to the wall. We, uh, like, I call up. It's like, hey, Chris, I said, yes, last night we have lunch. I got Kevin Cleary with me. And he was like, hey, you tell, like, uh-oh. <laughs> he, he didn't want to be seen. Intervention coming. Right. And so he goes, give me a half hour. Let me hop in the shower. So Kevin and I sit down, and then I call back up a half hour later, and he's put a block on the phone, you know, no, no incoming phone. I'm like, so we uh, we went, and then like a month, so that was October, so December, I'm in a friend's office in Fairfield, Connecticut, where we lived, and he went to Georgetown, and he and I went to Georgetown, and he had some entertainment experience, he, you know, he did some production stuff, and we were in there trying to come up with some like really cool project that we could include Chris. Like, let's come up. Who you? Who do you know that we can do something cool? And he had next to his desk a TV that he always had playing, and he just muted it, turned the volume down when it was a meeting. But he had CNN constantly looping. And out of the corner of my eye, in the middle of this meeting, I look over and I see Kristen Spade. I'm like, I look over. I'm like, on CNN. I'm like, now, what's he up to now? I mean, I just like because he went back to California, and I as I turn up the volume. It shows his apartment in Chicago, the John Hancock building, with an ambulance up front. The anchor is saying, like, we just heard, you know, Chris Farley is, you know, died of a drug overdose. And I'm like, I heard it on CNN. That's how I heard. Horrible. It, it, it beyond. It was shocking. And I and I'm like, and my buddy just goes, "There's the phone," you know. And I, I called, I called home. And as soon as I, so who'd you call? Dad, my dad. You know, my I called home. And as soon as my dad picked up the phone, I'm like, heard his voice. It's like fuck, it is. This isn't. This is happening. And I drove like the mile and a half, two miles back to my home from downtown in Fairfield. I don't remember it. I don't remember. I just, just was just gone. Just lost it. Just tears, you know. But what shook me out of that was I had to spend the rest of the night fielding calls and literally access Hollywood on my doorstep with the right. crew like can we get a statement like no you can't I, at least i had enough you know experience with the media and entertainment to tell them to, like you know you, 
you don't you, get, go. you, you don't get this piece of me. Right, right. I feel sorry for people that don't know that they can tell the media no. But and I, I can't imagine what it did to your, your family, your mother. Like, like how, it was just must have been. It was so surreal. It was and but but it was just this whole, you know, big funeral and it was just and a lot of memorials and so that definitely took a lot of the pain away because we got to distraction share with, and yeah. stuff. Yeah, but you know, and the fact that the world mourned him. Yeah, it probably meant a lot. It meant a lot. Then we, but, but then after that, we had to deal with it in our own way, you know. But, you know, one of the blessings I, I say to people, like, see, my dad died a year after that. And that's more like most people's experience with loss, especially the loss of a loved one. After six months, nobody asked me about my dad anymore. You know, siblings maybe. But nobody comes up and is like, God, your dad was so great. Or remember that time your dad did this? You know, I would love that. Anyone would love that. You know, keep that person alive. With Chris, I do. I get that every single day of my life. Right. Last 25 years. And that's a blessing. He is He is a part of, you know, he is as alive. I, I, I cherish, you know, just down to moments like this, even though we're talking about addiction, and but we've talked a lot about recovery. I mean, and we talked about Chris, who he was. And, you know, people don't get to do that. No, it keeps him alive 100%. It's, it's, and it's just a wonderful thing. And then you guys did the Chris Farley Foundation. I did, yeah. And what was the point of it? Well, the point it was, you know, it's it's funny. It was I knew right away after that I needed to tell Chris's story. I needed to go into schools and try to prevent people from going down that road. And I remember I went out with a woman whose son had also overdosed from from heroin, and this was a mother. I was going out with a mother, and she was it was very emotional, and you know it was very don't do this. This kind of like you know kind of make better choices kind of thing. And with a lot of tears that I'm like, yeah, again, I'm Irish. I'm like, we bury that emotion. I'm like, I'm right. not, I can't do that yet. At least not now. So what do I do? I've got this Chris Farley's name. I got these young kids. I'm going to talk to I'm like, well, I mean, I got to use humor. I know it's a serious subject matter, but I got to use humor. And I looked at all my brothers that went through second city and learned improv and I'm like, all these prevention things I've noticed in schools. I'm a marketing guy. So I, I got that. I knew how to build a brand. So I did. I, I could do that. But I also looked at like these prevention, school prevention programs are because they're in schools and delivered by professional teachers. They're going to be very information based, knowledge based, education based. So I'm like, well, OK, that's not my skill set. So I can't add to that. What can I add? How do we reach these How people? How do we, you know, you're throwing all this information, giving them pamphlets on methamphetamines, obviously isn't doing the trick. So I, I said they needed a tool to use that information. And I looked at improv, which was a communication tool, how to create ensembles, how to build trust, how to build acceptance. I'm like, that's it. It's connection. 25 years ago, I saw the need for connection. And I so I would go in teaching improv. And why is this important? Because you're creating peer enhanced environments and not peer pressure environments and fun and having fun, which is your freaking kids. So, and, and, and the better fun, healthier fun, safer fun. Right. I so, mean, that's kind of like the Genesis of dopey. You know what I mean? The Genesis of yeah. dopey was to have fun around this topic and to be together. So like you're, you're basically carrying a recovery message on behalf of your I love. I was talking about somebody else's addiction. Right. And basically. meanwhile, you're drinking. I'm drinking or or dry. just being store yeah, just being dry. So so yeah. how did recovery come to you in that moment? 
So I would have these moments of these. I would put together five years. It's like I could, I could do that. And I did that a couple of times. You would get five years yeah. without a program. Yep. And I, then my mind would go like, well, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day. You can have a Guinness. You know, you've been sober for four years. Like what? What's the you know, you got this. You're cured. Um, I can have a drink this. once in a while. You know how to manage this. And I was, it, you know, it was amazing how quick I was back on varsity. Yeah, I'm like, oh, man, I was just back, like, quickly as bad as I, and then I would do it again, you know, after more, like, train wrecks and divorce and this. I'm like, oh, maybe I got to stop drinking. And I would always come back. And, and because I was always, because I wasn't in recovery, that was pure and simple. But you're always talking about the tragedy and triumphs of your brother. Yep. And meanwhile, you're not plugged I'm into not doing, that yeah. thing. So four years ago, you know, I got to that point now. I, I had a, it was just before COVID and I had, I had a great summer. I, I, you know, we got some money in uh, and I just spent the summer just having a great time. And by that, I mean, like, what was amazing to me was I, I was smart enough to identify the changes in my, in my logic. Like I would go out and I would tell myself, okay, if I leave right now, I can make it home safely, which at that point, it was already too late. Like, yeah, that's how stupid it was. But it was like, if I leave right now, I can go. So I was like, 930 was like, Farley, where are you going? And I'm like, I got to go home. I'm, I'm done. And, but I, I survived. wasn't done. I survived tonight. Yeah, but I wasn't done. I would get home and go, okay, well, here we go. Know, look at this whole liquor lap, you know. And I would spend, you know, a lot of late nights watching some movie that I got really emotionally sappy with in my drunken stupor. Like, this is the greatest movie. And I, you know, and I'd start text. I'd start freaking uh, tweeting. I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is bad. You know, drunk tweeting. Yeah. Bad, bad, yes. bad, bad. Or I was, you know, I was like, all right, I got to go home now. But like, what back roads can I take? And I was like, you know, plotting my how to avoid the police kind of you know routine. I'm like, I, again, I was smart enough and I was getting old, way too old. I'm like, this is dumb. So I stopped again. I'm like, I got to stop. And I, I, I saw somebody that I really respected that I knew was so he was a musician. And I went to see him. He was, was it playing, Clapton? What? Was no, it no, it was some local guy. And he was playing at a brewery on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm like, great, I can see this guy who I like. And I liked his music, but I could be at a brewery and I could, on a Sunday on a beautiful day drinking. And I started doing, I was just pounding. And I knew this guy was in recovery. And I'm like, what is he looking at? He's looking at me just sitting there. And so the next day I just said, like, I'm done. I'm in. I, I want to be that guy. And I stopped. And I was like four months dry, dry. And a wonderful woman that started a clinic in a treatment clinic in, in Madison that I had done some work with her kids doing the improv stuff years ago. It was funny. I started doing improv as a prevention tool until she got me into, can you talk to my recovery IOP groups? And I realized, oh, wh like, what's this all about? It's like, well, it's about building trust and acceptance. I'm like, that's what I'm doing over here. I'm like, this, it was amazing. So I started, and she, so she called me up. She says, how are you doing? We haven't, I haven't talked to you in a while. I'm like, very proudly tell her I haven't had a drink in four months. And she goes, oh, that's wonderful. Like, we should have coffee. I'm like, I'd love to get coffee. Like, I'd love to connect. She goes, well, okay, well, well meet me Saturday morning, nine o'clock in the basement of the Presbyterian Church. I'm like, okay. I see what you're doing. I got gotcha. you. But this was somebody I trusted. And I said, yes. I said, yes. And I went. And I sh just shut my mouth and listened. And I was like, 
I, I just started really changing. You know, I was the, always, like all my brothers, we were always that disruptive person. If a funny thought goes in my head, it's coming out the door. And like in classes, in, in business meetings, I would be that guy with no filters. I'm like, but I, all of a sudden, I would do that in an AA meeting, and I was not getting the response. I was like, people were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like I would read, you know, anybody want to read, you know, how it works? Everybody? I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll read it in a British accent. And we're like, okay, okay. You're, you're that guy. And, and I'm like, this isn't working. And I just stopped doing that, put some filters on and listened. And I'm like, okay, this is not about how much you drink. This is about something completely different. And it really, the, the, the thing that hit me like between the eyes was the first time I heard the words rigorous honesty. Right. I'm like, holy shit. If that's what this program gives me and helps me, I mean, that is just what a burden off my shoulder. Like, I have lived this life of, like, I was delivering what people, I thought people wanted to see. They wanted to see Chris Farley's brother. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you Chris Farley's brother. You know, not, not only was it honest, but I'm like, you know, like, this whole program was like, Showing them who Tom, who Tom Farley is like and, and seeing if they like him, seeing if I like this guy. And it's just been that kind of a journey since. Rigorous you know? honesty is a, it's just an incredibly exciting phrase. It's an incredible right. opportunity for anybody. Because once you can experience rigorous honesty, you're kind of in the clear. Yeah. You know, it's like it's kind of like and then when you don't practice rigorous honesty, you're like, uh oh. I see it. You know, but you know. Yeah. You yeah. totally know. That's your barometer. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, listen, I have one more question, and it's just like, how much of Tommy in Tommy Boy? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. And it, this is a true story, too. So when, as I said, when my son was born, I named him Tommy the Third. you know, after my dad and me, and he was, he's Tommy the Third. And at that time, he was doing, the movie was called Billy the Third, and he was going to be Billy Callahan the Third. And that was fine. And then, but Lauren came to Chris and said, well, Adam's movie's coming out first and it's Billy Madison. We can't have two Billies. You got to change the name. And so all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'll be Tommy Callahan the third and it'll be Tommy boy. And he told me that I'm like, oh, that's, that's so after, beautiful. After, after dad, me and Tommy and literally Chris looked at me and said, no, after, after dad and Tommy, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah. Okay. I deserve that. And uh, so my son Tommy the third is the he's he's Tommy legit boy. Tommy boy yeah does it put pressure on him no he is so good about not and now that he's in this field and out in L A and he hangs out with Spade and you know Spade you know just kind of taking him on his ring but he he just is not doing that he's just being he, he, yeah my name's Tom Farley but I'm Tom Farley the third you know I'm like you know I'm not nobody's nephew nobody's you know, if it comes up, you know, it's a it's, it's amazing stories and it's an amazing legacy. But I get it. Yeah. How about Adam Sandler's song? Did oh. that fuck you up? No, it was just so beautiful. It right? was so beautiful. And it was what was really nice before he had done it a couple of times on, on the road. And my brothers, Kevin and Johnny, kind of did a couple of shows with them. And I so I knew it was pretty amazing. And then when he was going to host SNL and play it, he literally called my mom. And he said, you know, Ms. Farley, he just. How you doing? Have you seen the song? I did show it to her. And he goes, do you mind if I play it? You know, I'm going to do it on national. She goes, it's, it's beautiful, Adam. Absolutely. Incredible. So, yeah, it was really something special. 
Tom, I can't thank you enough. This was really, really, really exciting for me. Yeah. Really cool. I really, really appreciate your candor. And uh, Tom works at Rosecrans. If you're fucked and you want to get help, you can go to Rosecrans. Yeah, we got some. I, I, hundred years it's been around. It's very kind of understated, but it's it's an amazing program. We've got an amazing. We got a really specialized program for for uh, veterans, okay, and first responders that that like really deals with like obviously that's special trauma that humans aren't supposed to see. So you don't want to have them sharing in the general population. So we do a really good job with that specific. But and it's you know mental health and substance abuse. So I I just I love that I'm finally you know I've talked and advocated for um, addiction for so long, telling Chris's story, telling my story, and then COVID hit, and I'm like I was talking about what's coming after COVID. People are leaving this pandemic with behaviors they didn't have going in. I'm like right. I gotta I gotta get people into treatment, and I finally after so many years of wondering what I'm gonna be when I grow up, I. I think I've finally found it. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing for me. So thank it's you. It's been fun. Yeah. Has this not been the greatest podcast you've ever been on? Yeah. Yeah. Kidding this me? Is, this really was good. All right. Good. It was good stuff. Yeah. It was good for me. Thank you so awesome. much, Tom. I really appreciate you, man. So that was Tom Farley. And uh, I was quelling at the end, and I'm still quelling. I, I really, it really was emotional. I, I felt like it was a real real conversation. And, um, you know, I've been doing a million of these episodes and, and sometimes they really, uh, I don't know, it was powerful for me. And, and I also see some serious similarities between Chris Farley and, and Chris, uh, of dopey. And so it just, for some reason, it made me very, very emotional. We have a bunch of, uh, voicemails from hardcore old school dopes that I've had just sitting around and I and I, I you know I feel like Tom Farley is a classic alcoholic. Chris Farley was a horrible drug addict, but also a classic alcoholic. And Chris from Dopey obviously was classic alcoholic and a horrible drug addict. Now Dan Allen Senior is just a horrible classic alcoholic. He also has a podcast called The Movie Seller. He's been on this show. He's been on numerous Patreon shows. He was at DopeyCon. He sent me this story. And I have to play it. So here he is, Dan Allen Sr. Yo, Dave. This is Dan. And I just called because I wanted to share a quick story with you. Um, The other day on the show, you guys were talking about the saying, my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking or using. And how that saying is kind of bullshit. And I totally agree with that. And it made me think of this story because this is like a great memory And if every day that I drank was like this day, I'd still be drinking. But the reality is that most days were not like this, which is why I haven't had a drink in like four and a half years. But anyway, this one time, my wife and my brother and I were invited to a wedding. It was kind of a weird situation because it was this girl that we grew up with. We were all dirt poor. We lived in the backwoods of Maine. I mean, this girl's family had like a gas powered washing machine, which yes, that is a real thing. Uh, anyway, she's brilliant. She got these big academic scholarships to get into an Ivy league school and everything. And she went on to become a lawyer and moved to New York city. And that's where she met her future husband, this rich dude from a rich family. So the wedding is a bunch of poor Maine 
country trash and then a bunch of rich people that went to prep schools. So super weird dynamics. And the wedding was hosted at this girl's summer camp, but it was like during the off season. So we stayed there all weekend and slept in the bunks. My wife and I got a babysitter and prepared for the weekend by buying a bunch of cheap liquor. And my brother brought weed and Adderall and we were set to go. We drank the free liquor that they provided at the open bar and we hung out with everyone through dinner. And then we went back to our bunk and drank the cheap liquor that we brought. We got smoked up and then we took a bunch of Adderall. And then we went to the tennis courts and we just started hitting balls over the mess hall into the woods. We thought it was the funniest thing ever. And once we were done with that, we walked by like 12 Ivy League kids all sharing one joint. And we totally made fun of them because they were acting like they were like super badass. And it was hilarious. And then we went and found the, there was a bonfire going on. And that's where all the Mainers were hanging out. So I started talking to this one dude, her, one of her cousins, about uh, the Celtics and Isaiah Thomas. The younger Isaiah Thomas, who was playing on the Celtics at the time. And this dude insists that Thomas did not play for the Celtics. And then at one point in the conversation, he shows me a knife and says he's going to kill me if Isaiah Thomas does in fact play for the Celtics. So I decided that was probably a good time to move along from that conversation. And we went and drank some more and smoked some more and took some more Adderall. And then um, we decided it was time to pull some pranks. So first thing we did was wrap the bride and groom's bunkhouse door in wrapping paper which we actually found out later was the bride's mother's bunk, but that's all right. Um, And then we tried to climb on the roof. We thought we'd like bang around and scare everybody, but that just ended up with us falling on the ground and laughing our asses off. And then I came up with the idea to run my boxers up the flagpole. So I got them off and we put them up the flagpole. And eventually, after playing on the playground for a while, we finally went to bed around like three in the morning. Well, the next morning I went to breakfast and a bunch of people said hi to me like I was their best friend. I didn't remember any of them, but I guess I had met them the night before. And then we attended the wedding ceremony, which was on the main lawn of the camp. And over the ceremony, over the bride and groom flying in the beautiful sky was my boxers up the flagpole. It was perfect and majestic and I was very proud of myself I'm still very proud of that moment um anyway thanks Dave stay strong dopey nation fucking toodles for Chris yeah I love Dan it's not the dopiest story in the world but I I just love Dan Dan has a podcast called the movie seller and Dan is uh is sober because he has horrible alcoholic stories too it's not all just running running boxers and hating on rich people with your rough and tumble, poor Mainers. But, uh, you know, I, I cannot say enough good things about Dan. I just love to hear his voice, and I'm happy that he sends in a voicemail. And Dan gets socks. So if you want socks, send in a voicemail. Send in an email. Cajole me into reading it. Do I owe you anything? Write me an email. Remind me that I owe you something. Send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Don't be a stranger. You know, that's where we're, I'm really, really pushing for unity in the dopey nation. And there is mostly unity in the dopey nation. But actually speaking about unity in the dopey nation, like what's going on in Reddit? Like you guys have to 
get active. I need Reddit to be. I, I, now I know Reddit's gonna like make fun of me. I want Reddit to have a resurgence. Cormac, I want to give Cormac a shout out for setting up Reddit. I want to give uh, all the admins a shout out. Who did I not give a shout out to last time? Fucking Katie B. Katie B. Let's let's the light shine always. Somebody got upset that I didn't. Sh- oh, Dave Masculani. Dave Masculani, I think, always needs a shout-out. So let's give a big shout-out to David Masculani. And there's some new reviews. So before we end the show, I just want to call my dad with the new reviews. So call me dad. Hello? You're on the show. Oh, hi. Hello, everybody. You, you know what just happened? Um... I did Wordle, and I put in dopey as my first word, and I, I got it in two. Amazing. How, I got it in two, too. I put, what did I put as my first word? I put in, hold on, standby. See, it's annoying that you got it in two from that. I put in, well, hold on. It won't show me my first fucking guess. Oh, yeah, I put blunt in first. And then, of course, yeah. I knew it was... Braid. How did you figure oh, it you out? Give, oh. Who cares? How, that's, how did you get from blunt to braid? Well, I thought it was gonna. I, 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 I thought it was gonna be brain, but I used the n in blunt, so I figured it was braid. Amazing, but, amazing. But how right, often? How this. often? How, shush. How often do you get it in two guesses? Not very often. No. You know, somebody Not recently wrote me on Instagram, right? And, yeah. and you know what Instagram is? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, what about? Yes. So somebody wrote me on Instagram, and they were a really big fan of the show. And I don't think they thought um, I was going to respond to them, right? And uh, he writes, "I've been listening. I've been listening to Dopey and uh, backwards, and I love the show. And you know, he, he seemed like he was a big fan." But he was up to the episode. Do you remember when that lady, the English lady from the BBC, came to your house? Oh, yeah, yeah, with me brewing tea in the microwave. Yeah, and uh, and Linda was there, and he was like, you need to, you're interrupting Alan. You really sound like a jerk. <laughs> he, he said, I really sounded like a jerk in that episode. And, He's right on top of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no. It's rough. It's not, anyway, e- it's not easy. You know, you know, for that, for around Thanksgiving, Ginny got this wordle in one. What Can was the one? That? What was the one? The one right before Thanksgiving. And you know what the, it was, the feast. word was feast. Yeah. 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 That was feast. an easy, that was a gimme. Maybe. Yeah, I guess. Well, I didn't yeah. get it. I mean, how often do you get them in two? Uh, not very often. It's, it's, I feel very, I feel very happy that I got it in two. Uh, I'm, I'm happy I got it in two, and I'm happy I'm in first place in fantasy. Oh, uh, there we go. Mr. Glody, Glody hey, Narcissist uh, look, here. Let me read these emails, because I got to go... They're not... Uh, first of to... all, shush. They're not emails. Oh, they're not... They're reviews. Yeah, yeah. Secondly, yeah. why do you think they're emails, Dad? I don't know. I, what, what do I, listen, it doesn't matter what I think, but I think right now I'm looking at it and it's reviews. They have all these stars on there. I'm, I think I've been diminished to fourth place, but uh, I feel like I'm about oh, to no, surge. You're, you're right up there. I'm about no, to surge. Right Seymour yeah. has fallen to third, second place. You're in first place. And I think it's good that it's your guys' league and you're winning, so 
you guys are ahead, but I, I do think you're in trouble. I think there's injuries of brewing, and I look to see Kevin Durant get hurt soon. Uh, well, that's, thank you for your thoughts, yes. I do not appreciate it. If Kevin Durant gets hurt, I'm finished. <laughs> well, I look forward to Durant's injury just on a personal level because of you and because I don't love Kevin Durant or the Nets. Now, people sometimes, I think, write reviews for the show because they want to hear you read their reviews for the show. I doubt that. Well, um, I just want to well, say we want you to write reviews for the show. On a scale of 1 to 10, Dad, how joyful are do, do the reviews make you when they come in? No, I like seeing them. I'm just getting a little upset that we're, you know, we're like, you know, being, uh, you know, you know, coveting it, you know, being pretentious and reading these good stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's not good taste to, to applaud oneself. I don't know. Um, what do you mean? So, but no, it's great. What do you mean? Well, you know, if, if you talk about yourself all the time as being wonderful, it's not, that's not a good image. Well, that's why I love it when you read the one-star reviews. Oh, yeah. Oh, let me just say that uh, New York City Sarah should start writing in because the last guy you had on the show was certainly an entitled white guy, for sure. Holy cow. White privilege personified, Diddy. Oh, absolutely, yes. Do you have any so opinions? She would have been right on target with, with him. You know, before you read the review, do you want to hear the, the, the anti-Diddy email I got? Oh. Hold on, well. I'm going to read it to you. I apologize to Diddy. Hold on one second. Hold on, yeah, hold no, on. Listen, he was very, very brave to be on the show and talk about all that stuff, so I don't think he should be criticized. And open. Um, very open and very dopey. And he really, you know, I, I personally no, loved... It was, great, it was a great show, and but, and he also spent six years in prison. So, I mean, you know, his, his, his white privilege didn't save him, for sure. Hold on, I can't find this fucking thing. Oh, no, Jesus Christ. I want to read it. I like this kind of stuff. Oh, God, but I can't find it. Ugh. Maybe at the end of the show you'll find this it. This is the end of the show. Oh. <laughs> this is definitely the end of the show. I'm not going to read it on the show. I'm going to read it on Patreon. I want to give a hearty thank you to Diddy. His show was killer. The dopey was robust. His ability to talk was endless. We sat in your in your living room and you're in the dining area from two in the afternoon to like five thirty, and it got dark. I know, yeah, I know you missed the train and everything, and I'm gonna miss my train if we don't hurry up. It got dark. Yeah, it got dark while we sat there. So we want to give a big thanks to Diddy on Patreon. I will read the the kind of rough Diddy review, and if you want to listen to it, you join us on Patreon. Now, Dad, please read some reviews. I don't, I don't know why all you're right. wasting all this time, Dad. I'm wasting time? Read the review. Holy cow. Real and relatable by ice cream. One, two, three, four, five. I am someone who struggled with drugs for 30 years and have been lucky to be successful 10 years sober. I love living vicariously through the guest experience and also appreciate the Howard-inspired interviews. Well done. Yeah, give me give me your thoughts about you know uh, copying Howard Stern. What do you mean? 
Well, I mean, I think is this guy true? I mean, is the guy saying a truthful thing? The Howard-inspired interview. Well, I think Dopey in itself is Howard Stern-inspired. I wanted Dopey to uh, emulate the Stern show of old, and I am Howard Stern-inspired. I don't think my interview style is that much like Howard's, but, you know, I think it's a compliment, so I'll take it. All right, okay, that's good. Why, what do you now, think? Uh, you want to read another one? Why, do you have an opinion about it? No, I don't. I, I never listened to the guy, so I, I didn't know what he, you know, what he was talking about. What I so. want to know is... Does Seymour listen? What's his take? Is he worried about me coming up on him? Seymour hasn't contacted me in about a week, so I don't know what that means. It's because it you took. It's because you took first place. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe I said something at the last book club meeting that wasn't smart. What did you Who say? Knows? Oh, I don't know. I got into an argument with him. Oh about, God! What uh, did you get into? Uh, what about what? Uh, the Ukraine war. Um, what did you say? Uh, you know, well, I, I said that Putin, no, no matter what Putin was afraid of NATO, that uh, that he doing all this horrible, horrible atrocities in Ukraine cannot be defended. And Seymour doesn't defend that. He just he just says that uh, Russia was pushed into it by by uh, NATO and uh, and and uh, and was forced to do it. Hold on, Dad. Hold on. I need. I need. I need to. I need to set an alarm clock because you're putting me to sleep. Um, is Seymour? Right. Is Seymour? Let me, is let me get is Seymour still smoking weed? No, he never. He doesn't smoke weed. You get no. Don't say anything bad about Seymour. He's my dear, dear, dearest friend. I love Seymour, so. but he's gonna go down. Trust me on that. Seymour's a manipulator. Oh, you you and one. Seymour are I'm dueling dueling banjos of narcissist manipulators. Read another review, please. Oh, I, uh, Jerry Stahl loved the long format. I finished 999 last week and unfortunately uh, had to miss Jerry's reading here in Los Angeles. So it was doubly great to hear him on Dopey. I love him and Dopey. I love how long the episodes are, uh, 306 uh, on ketamine. Those guys are doctors, doubt it. Three hours of goodness. I love this podcast. What's what's your okay, take on the long on the long? Very 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 what? long one called the reality of recovery. Maybe you should put that on on Patreon. That because he's at the end he says something like uh, I uh, he loves the show, but then he says just give just give those of us on MMT a bit more compassion. No, read we it. Read the rev- that. Shush shush shush. Read the review. Oh. It, Oh, boy. Thank you for putting out the show every week. It provides me a little bit of peace, serenity, and fun for me. This is The Reality of Recovery by John G. 74. We all know recovery can get a bit boring when all of you uh, from society or whatever, all day is just to go to your 12-step meeting and you'll be fine. I hear the dumb crazy being told each week and relish in the fact that I once did that dumb stuff, but I don't have to act like that anymore. Sometime during the podcast, I'll be laughing and I'll look over at my wife and she'll be white as a ghost, just horrified of what she just heard. But our group needs to hear these tales because it helped us understand the realities of life and that everyone's recovery is different. It is all about bettering our daily lives and just being happy with who we are. Mm. I had my wife share the podcast with her Al-Anon group and I'm waiting to hear back as to their thoughts 
Thank you, Dave, for all the hard work you do. Keep it up. I truly appreciate it. Just give those of us on MMT a bit more compassion. We are doing what we need to do to stay in recovery. And it was that uh, methadone maintenance treatment. Is that that? That's very impressive. That's what I was going to ask you, Dad. Did you know what? uh, Hold on. Let me see if I can. No, that's not it. No, here, hold on. Hold on. That's your round of applause for knowing that MMT stands for methadone maintenance treatment. I do give you guys a break. Listen, I I, I, just, I put up a video recently on YouTube in front of the methadone clinic, and, and a lot of people really liked it, and a lot of people didn't like it. But if you go and hang out in front of the methadone clinic, that's what you will hear. And uh, And I commend everybody on methadone maintenance, those who are you know, not using other things and those who, who are using other things. You just, just keep going, do your best. I don't, I mean, like I, it doesn't, it's not up to me. You know what I mean? I'm doing my thing. You do your thing. And I wish everybody the best. That's all. Right. Right. What do you mean? Right. right. Why are you, hold, 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 hold. what do you mean? Right. You say it so dismissively. You say, right. Yes, David. What are you trying to say, dad? I, I just said, well said, and I need to say goodbye to the Dobie Nation and everybody be healthy and uh, toodles for Chris. Hold on. Are you, ru- are you rushing? Are you rushing to the airport to pick up your lady friend? Um, I, I'm going to the train station. Okay. You don't want to Bye-bye. give any details about picking up your lady friend from the airport for a romantic Hanukkah oh, week oh, no. in New York? Uh, Everybody, bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, Dave. I'm hanging up on you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that was my dad. And before we go, I want to remind you guys to buy Dopey Gear at the you know the website, dopeypodcast.com. There's candles available that maybe you could even still get for Christmas. They're beautiful with delicious scents. We are in a collaboration with the North Avenue Candle Company. And... Um, you can go to NorthAvCandleCompany.com slash collections slash Dopey or just click on the link on the DopeyPodcast.com page. Uh, I have all this fucking shit. I'm going to make a video about all the shit I have in the garage that I want to sell. So stay tuned for that. Uh, you know, we're building up to Christmas. And I would love it if you sent in some Dopey Christmas stories for the Christmas episode. Send in a voicemail. Make it short, make it dopey, you will get socks, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Alright, I'm going to play this song, but only because uh, I think it's going to make me look a little bit very tired. I'm just going to start it.
and you know I like yeah, you do tell me feel like it. Yeah, I'm sure you can relate to the calling your dad. Dude, it's just really good. Like, where did you write? What did you write that? I like the lyrics. I hope they can hear.